You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. I'm Alex Rodriguez, and I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg. This is the deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many yeah, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Ladies and gentlemen, it is showtime. Please welcome the team of the Fulhamish Podcast. It's the Fulhamish Podcast, your independent voice of Fulham FC. My name is George Cooper and welcome to the show. And what was a day to remember for the history of the Premier League as Rebecca Welsh became the first female referee ever to officiate a game in the competition. On the flip side, it was a day to forget for Fulham as we played out a rather flaccid 2-0 home defeat to Vincent Company's side. Was it a hangover from Everton? Is it Christmas fatigue? Have there been too many mince pies consumed at Motsford Park? Was it all of the above? We'll analyse what went wrong, uncover any cause for concern and then brush away any negativity as it's Christmas after all. And ultimately, there's a lot more reasons to be cheerful. Joining me today, all the way from Canada, is a very jet-lagged Ben Jarman. How you doing, mate? Good morning, Coops. I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Are you sure you're very well or were you up at four in the morning um, doing the luge and then struggling to get back to sleep? (laughs) Yeah, I was up at four in the morning watching the Canucks and then went back to sleep and I've had almost two sleeps tonight. So I feel absolutely dreadful, but hopefully I can bring it on the podcast today. I'm sure you will. Massive commitment to the cause and it's great to uh, to have you back on these shores. Also joining me is Santa's little helper, Don Betts. How are you doing? Good, mate. <laughs> you know, um, my, first, my first Saturday free look home game in a while and it's full of ruining it as always. So <laughs> yeah, I bet you were so glad you went. I was so glad I waited two years for that game. <laughs> yeah, I was, I, was, I, was, I was absolutely delighted that I pulled my hungover self after the darts on Friday to watch that dross yeah yeah I mean listeners obviously can't see but Don Betts is wearing a rather adorable little Santa hat and as soon as he popped up on our screens I said I bet my bet dollar that you acquired that hat at the darts and lo and behold uh, it was anyway did you have a good time with the darts we, which we all know is your first sport let's, let's, let's yeah, be honest yeah, it's, like, it's, you're, you're, it's, you're it's, true passion it's my priority um, no it was great because I think uh, most games went to five sets and the first game was like, I think it went every possible leg including sudden death. So it was well over an hour. I was like, well, what's going on? It's it's, it's round two. Like, <laughs> these games should be over in like 40. But no, it was good fun. Um, do love the do love the do love the afternoon sessions because it gets to, it's about half four or five o'clock and you're absolutely steaming already. So it's a great way, <laughs> great way to start the Christmas period. Yeah. Also, that's just on that point, Jarms, first Fulham game in two years, we've beaten West Ham 5-0, beat Nottingham Forest 5-0. You're thinking, ah, oh, now's the time to get back. And then you get you get that load of, <laughs> load of shy in front of you. Uh, Mate, just I sum was... up how you felt like at the at that moment. Was it just, did you have to laugh? Most Fulhamish thing ever? Or Totally the most Fulhamish thing ever. But like to give you some context, I was on the plane over and we we'd come all the way through London. So I was basically ground spotting and I was like leaning over my girlfriend looking to see Craven Cottage because I was so excited. Like, obviously we came into this season, we haven't played it particularly well for the whole thing. And then we'd lit on fire a couple of weeks ago, scoring goal after goal after goal. And then you just arrive and you're faced with just 90 (laughs) minutes of absolute dross. Um, But it is typical Fulham really. So you're used to it by now. Yeah, exactly. And also, before I forget, joining us today is uh, Avas Malik. How are you doing, mate? I'm all right. Thanks. How are you guys? Yeah, good, good. You got some three-word reviews for us as well, I believe. Yeah, so. I went over to, to Twitter to have a look at what people were feeling. As you were saying, uh, George, it's either Christmas-themed or uh, Everton-themed. So start off with Rick mm. Cardis, friend of the pod, with Sticky Toffee Hangover, which goes on from the Sticky Toffee Heaven that we had a couple couple days ago. Uh, Paul Budd with Silver's Feliz Navi Bad. 
which is quite funny. Um, James I think, I think with, there was one of those last year, around this time last year as well. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> and we had James Wilson with Sander Slays Whites, which I liked quite a lot. And then, and just like we were saying, Black, White and Fred were saying that was Fulhamish, which I, I kind of feel very strongly about. And then very lastly, um, which I got, thought was quite funny, uh, Burnley's podcast, Turfcast, tweeted with, even we're surprised. Yeah. I think they summarised the, the feeling around the fan base. Ben... It's the sort of thing that you hear the pundits sort of say, you know, watch the footage on Match of the Day and you hear some of the words after uh, after the game. But ultimately, do you think that Fulham maybe didn't give Burnley the respect that they deserved yesterday? Totally. I think it's probably a little bit of a mix and that we didn't give them the respect they deserve and they did things that made them incredibly comfortable to defend against us. I think I was chatting to Sammy at the game. I had the pleasure of sitting next to Sammy again. And we were talking about how they funneled us into areas that just made it so comfortable for them to deal with. They basically defended us wide and then pushed the ball into the middle and broke through the middle where all of our players had gone over to one side of the pitch. And it was so evident they had a very well-prepared game plan to play against us. And I think from a Fulham point of view, we had a squad that was a little bit paper thin. We didn't have many options on the bench, but we chose a starting 11 that had a lot of the same personalities out there today. We had a lot of very floaty players, um, not much pace out there. And Burnley are a pacey team. They've built themselves on being small, nimble and fast. And I think that really paid off for them yesterday. And, and credit to them, I think they, they definitely deserved the result after their second half performance. But I think there was a couple of sliding doors moments for Fulham, especially at the second half when um, James Trafford essentially played the ball straight to Tom Kenny on the edge of the box. And Kenny nutmegs himself. If he puts the ball in the back of the net there, I think Fulham are comfortably running out this victory, maybe 2-0, especially after the first half performance when we had so many opportunities towards the end of the half. You then have that. I said to Sammy, if... if Kenny puts the ball in the back of the net there, we're laughing. But they're going to go down the other end here and they'll probably make us pay. And they absolutely did. Not on that passage of play, but the passage afterwards. And from there, it was very much, a, as I said, a sliding doors moment for the game. Mm. And just on that sort of sliding doors theme, Dom, there was that spell in the first half where we had three big chances in quite quick succession. Harry Wilson, Twinkle Toes, waltzed his way through Toe poked a, uh, a shot, didn't quite have enough power. Palinia then fired one straight at the keeper and I believe a Wobi uh, also had a, an effort saved. If either of those three go in, do you think Fulham go on to comfortably win this game? And I guess another point to this, uh, another question to this point is ultimately, do you think that it was just lack of quality in the final third finishing that, that cost us yesterday? Maybe. I just felt like we were just quite complacent in our football all game, really. I didn't. I really didn't feel like there was a zip to our play. Um, but I said that first half was just bad, bad from both teams. I think Burnley had one shot that, and not even not on target in that first half. And then, but I always do find this. I know we did come back against Liverpool, but I always find in the when it, whoever Fulham are playing, like whoever whoever tends to score first, the result tends to go in that team's favour. Like when I don't, I don't remember like any big comebacks. I know we ended up going three two against Liverpool. We obviously ended up losing that four three. But I don't know. I feel like when we go that first goal down, especially sometimes at home, there has been a few of these home games under Silver, including sort of games in the Championship. Um, that he, he sort of there wasn't wasn't really too much of a fight back. I know we, we you know the, the amount of games we've been playing at the moment's been crazy for our standards, you know, for a team who's sort of not in Europe, still playing sort of every every sort of three, four days. But sort of in general yesterday, yes, if we score one of our chances in the first half, we'll probably go on to win the game. But I think, you know, we didn't change anything at half time, I believe, but Burnley did. And then once Burnley get that first goal, we didn't look like we were going to carve them open and create too many chances. I mean, I, I probably think, you know, once once um, Everton equalised on Tuesday, he probably created more chances in the last sort of five, ten minutes of that game than we did sort of in the second half yesterday. There was a few chances from, you know, I think there was the one when Romson sort of cut it back and then it cut it, sort of tried cut back on himself and then that was blocked. But yeah, I just thought yesterday was complacent. Um, but I think, I think I saw something on Twitter earlier that I think all three games just for Christmas under Silver have all, have all been defeats. I think it was in Man United and was it Sheffield United or something a couple of years ago. So, but yeah, I think yesterday in general was just a poor day all round. I mean, considering what happened in the three previous home games, you know, the Wolves game, the the West Ham game, and the Nottingham Forest game. But yeah, I think it was just a bit of complacency. And, you know, we're going into two games now over the festive period where 
I know I know Bournemouth had a poor start to the season, but they're arguably one of the four teams in the league considering where they've come from. I think they moved above us with that late victory over Nottingham Forest yesterday and then go ahead, go go to Arsenal who looks decent against Liverpool yesterday. So yeah, I, I think obviously it's it's fine, but I think, you know, we really should games like yesterday is we should be going into like comfortable victories. But I think mm. we were just a bit too complacent <clears throat> yesterday. And as as you mentioned, Coops, I think we maybe didn't give Burnley the respect that he deserves and they scored two brilliant goals. Arguably the second one I think we should close them down a bit more. But yeah, I think we were just too complacent up in 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 summary for yesterday really. Mm. And Avast, there was just a real lack of intensity from the word go really that you kind of feel like if we had a if we were facing maybe you know one of the bigger sides and we were sort of up against a little bit more, it just wouldn't have been. Do you th- so we've obviously touched upon that maybe we didn't give Burnley the respect they deserve, but also are there other elements at play? Is it, you know, the mental fatigue from the penalty shootout at Everton? Is it the fixture congestion list? Is it, well, like, what, what if you had to put your finger on why we had such lack of intensity yesterday, where would you, where would you put that? I'd put it to a, a couple of things. I think as Dom's saying, complacency definitely pe- felt like a major, major factor. You could tell there was no, no, no intensity. The zip wasn't there in our in movement, particularly as much as our passing. Um, and you can kind of tell with, with Silver's Fulham team within the first five, 10 minutes, what kind of Fulham you're going to get. You're either going to get that high pressing, high energy team that's going to create chances early on and, and maybe score early. Or you're going to get this passive team that we saw against Brentford and Chelsea where you kind of, they're just not at it. And it just seemed like that. I, I think the emotional high of Tuesday is probably playing a, played a bigger role than we realise. Maybe, mm. maybe in the crowd as much as on the players. Um, to try and get yourself up for a game against Burnley is kind of hard. And I think you can see it in the way they played. And, and as everyone's touched on, I think um, we almost came, turned up and assumed we would win. You get that first goal, you know that Burnley are going to be a bit more desperate and create more, create more space for us to get behind them and score. Um, but we never looked like scoring. I think if we'd scored early, we would have been comfortable. But I think there was a bit of a hangover from Tuesday and um, a bit of complacency, as Don was saying. Mm. James, do you think <clears throat> it's a sort of a bit of a recurring theme this year that we, we tend to just struggle a bit against teams that allow us to have the lion's share of possession. Do you, do you find that? And I thought that was the, very much the case yesterday and Burnley super organised, knew what they were going to do. They were trying to get us on the counter and sort of, you know, be very solid and, um, you know, valiant in their defence. Do you think that that's a thing that you're starting to see creep in more with this Marco Silva side? It kind of reminded me a bit when we struggled to you know, uh, comprehensively beat teams in the championship, you know, similar kind of way that the game pans out. Yeah, I think there's definitely some correlation there between uh, having more possession and also not being able to do too much with the ball. But it's it's shocking really, because as you say, back in the championship, we used to have loads of possession. We used to do quite a lot with it. I think that Fulham have always struggled really to understand how to unlock teams that are in a low block. And I think Burnley, as soon as they went 1-0 up yesterday, it was very obvious that they were just going to sit back and try and block out Fulham. And they did that and they did it very well. They were very organised. They were very structured. And Fulham at times looked incredibly one-paced, as Avast said. Our passing was not quick enough. The movement was absolutely shocking at times. And the amount of times that Fulham played passes around the corner into blind alleys or into just into the middle of the pitch was just unbelievable for a team that is normally so structured to have to, to lose that structure in a in a point where you really need to have it was quite shocking from us I thought and I do agree with you I think you know when when we have when we have possession quite a lot we tend to run out of ideas fairly quickly I think that's because on the, the whole makeup of the squad and the model of how we play, really need game changers. And right now we don't have them. I was speaking to Sammy and Dan after the game yesterday and said, you know, when you think about it, who are our real game changers? And probably before yesterday, we, we would, two names probably come to my head quickly. One is Tom Kenny, who yesterday was not a game changer. I, I thought Tom didn't have the best game. The second one is Adama Traore, which gives us something different there because he's built very differently to the rest of our squad. And that he has a lot of pace, and he can really start to get in behind them. And that allows Fulham to take themselves 10 or 15 yards back and try and draw the opposition out. Yesterday, we kind of had, <clears throat> as I mentioned previously, a lot of players out on the pitch that felt very similar in the, in the style that they operate and play. I think Awobi was the only one really trying to drive the team on. And, you know, when you, ha- when you have a low block, to circle my very long and rambling point back to your question, when you have a low block and you need 
you know, and, you, and you're in a lot of possession, you need game changers and you need someone that's going to be able to pull something out of nothing. And yesterday it felt like we did not have that. And that's something we've had throughout the whole season too. Marco's style of play tends to rely on that number nine being involved in the build-up play. And as we were trying to adapt to Raul getting into the, t- into the team, that's when we struggled to really be cohesive in our attacking play. And we finally got to a stage where he, was, he found a tactic with either t- Tom or Andreas coming really deep, one of the two, to collect the ball and start, start attacking from the back. And Raul would be part of that build-up. But yesterday, Muniz didn't really contribute much at all. Like, he couldn't hold up the ball. And then when you get Carlos coming and he's got trampolines in his boots, he can't control any kind of a ball. It's the most frustrating thing. And you, we, we never really had a series of possession where we thought, OK, we're building towards something here. We're moving, manipulating their plays to create space. It's never materialised. And it just felt like an early season game where we couldn't put anything together as a, as a pocket of play to draw them out to... to out-tactic them and it seemed like we were playing with 10 men a lot of the time especially when we were attacking it just felt like an early season game where you kind of go okay Raul trying to do a rikishi against Newcastle has really cost us in games in which we should be getting points like you kind of write off this game in your own head being okay well at least we'll get three points against Burnley but actually you've got to turn up and uh, just like John was saying complacency and even from the crowd, we weren't really, we were, I mean, we'll probably touch on it later. We were quite dire in, in the stands to try and urge them on to actually do something. And it just felt like we knew as well that we weren't going to do anything in this game within the first 20, 30 minutes. We, weren't, we knew we weren't going to score. And it was just that frustration of knowing that we're not going to get anything through our number nine. A really, really frustrating game. And I, I had a, yeah, a, really, a really tough time watching that game. Mm, yeah, it wasn't all that easy on the eye. And... I guess Burnley just took their chance as well, didn't they? It wasn't one of those where you came back and you're like, we've been outplayed for 90 minutes there. They get two half chances, arguably, if if that, from outside the box. Dom, in the first one, um, so Odebert, brilliant one-two with Foster, walks around Paulinia, and then just some strike, hit it really sweetly. The second that it came off his boot, you know that was going to go in to use the old cliche, but... Do you think that we could have done better in preventing that goal or is it just a pop shot from from 25 yards that's sailed into the top right-hand corner? I think with the first goal, you can just, you can put it, it's good sort of interlinking play between the two Burnley players. But the the second one, I just felt like he kind of just walked through the middle of the park. Yeah, it was weird. It was very weird. There was sort of no, there was no, there was no closing down. And because I didn't, I didn't see the second goal back again until I, I watched uh, watched the highlights last night. But um, I just found it so strange that there was just no one just put a challenge in. He sort of just was allowed to sort of walk through the centre of the park and then had, had a shot and it and ended up going in, into the back of a net. I mean, just two great strikes if you're looking at the strikes individually. But I feel like the second, it was just, it summed up our play in over across the 90 minutes, to be honest, just a lack of intensity, complacency. And yeah, I think, yeah, the second goal just completely summed up our performance. Sander Berger always has a huge game against us, doesn't he? From memory. It reminds me of the Sheffield United game that Dom, you mentioned a couple of years ago, because didn't one of their players walk through our midfield and scored um, to beat us 1-0 a couple of years ago? It was a very similar goal um, where we just backed off. I think Pellini got caught up high off the pitch. And then you, if you watch it back, everyone's just jogging. And Timmy Chestnuts is just watching um, the fella, sorry, fella, Berg, run along and just and, and just sort of place in the corner. And Leonard got a hand to it. He at least got a few fingers to it. So you kind of feel like, could he have put a, a stronger wrist into it and maybe saved it? It's a bit, probably a bit harsh on him. But um, I feel like if you get something on it, you probably should save it. But very, very preventable. As Dom said, it summed up the lethargy that we had. And... Um, just like when we looked, we were 2-0 down to Chelsea, didn't think we were going to score one, let alone two. Um, and you kind of just go, okay, well, let's go get something to eat instead. <laughs> yeah, it was just one <laughs> of those games, <clears throat> wasn't it? I mean, we had Mooners uh, leading the line yesterday, um, attempted his trademark overhead kick. Dom, is he ever going to get one of those in? I mean, how, like, they're, <laughs> it's just so far a 0% success rate off about I feel like he just, I feel like he just feels like he has to try it. Because <laughs> it's what he's known for now to try a bicycle kick every game, but I said I think the last um, couple of games is just although Raul did ha- obviously was this four and five he had at one point. I just we just signed a striker like yeah. like but like it's not like oh we how much like we we got fifty odd million ready to spend on a striker, so it's not like we're 
going to be nitpicking, but let's face it, we all know it's going to end up with Danny Ings coming in on loan on deadline day. So, I mean, it's just, it's, just, it's, just scre- it's just screaming, it's just screaming out for that from Tony Khan, I think. But yeah, I think it just, as, as we mentioned earlier, like when the number nine isn't in the game, it completely nullifies us because you need, you need him to bring in the other, the, the three sort of attacking players behind him. And especially like I've went, how poor I think Pereira has been all season anyway. I mean, I think the, the and, I think someone also mentioned it. Well, I think I saw on Twitter earlier that with Harry Wilson, he's a lot better when he's coming off the bench. And it showed that having Willian to start the game and then having someone like Harry Wilson to bring on, let's for example, is a, is a lot better um, once the defenders are more tired. But yeah, I think Moon is, like, to be honest, I think Moon is this season actually looked better than uh, Vinicius, to be fair to him. But yeah, it's just it shows why we we, we clearly need a striker. And it, it, you know, you need to go big. Go, you go in for someone like you, if you put fifty million on the table for for Santiago Jimenez. We're fine on going out the Champions League, dropping into the Europa League. I'm not saying we're going to get him, but I mean, I think we probably just signed the wrong Jimenez in the summer anyway. I wish should have gone for Santi straight away. Uh, but then you know, I don't I don't think I can't see Fulham going in for uh, Garassi from Stuttgart. I think you have bigger clubs looking up looking at him. So it depends what the cons have to do. I'm, obviously, all the links have been with Andre and Fluminense, but to be honest, is I know it'll be a great signing, but it's I mean I'm looking at centre midfielder, centre midfield probably the last position we need to probably strengthen in right now, and yeah. you need someone who can put hold the ball up and put the ball in the back of the net because you have if you put a even a 10, 15 goal a season striker into this team, you know it will completely completely changes and yeah. you know we we probably be look looking to probably see where West Ham are at the moment. Yeah, no, you're right, Dom. Uh, just on the Andre, surely we're heavily linked with him because there's more of an indication of where Paulini is going to end up in January, right? In my eyes, that's our. I don't think he's going anywhere in January. I think yeah. I, I, I think he's staying put until the end of the season, but I don't expect him to be here next next season. Yeah, totally. I just don't. I, I just don't. I, I I just don't think they're going to they're going to sell him midway midway. I think they're going to have Andre to come in. What alongside Palinia, and then once Palinia goes in the summer, then that will yeah, make that, that position his own. Because I just, I, I, you know, I just don't know who's going to stump up the money that Fulham are going to ask for in January transfer window. I can't see Bayern Munich doing it, to be honest. Um, and other teams who need a player like that, where well, you're probably looking at Liverpool, and you're probably looking at, I don't know, maybe, maybe Chelsea or Arsenal. I don't, I don't United. I don't know, but United will probably just sign another player who, who if they signed him he'd probably end up being useless for him because that's what happens with any time Manchester United have signed a player in the last 10 years it's a kiss um, of and death. they wonder what um, so yeah I, I, I think I think it will just be he'll sort of work alongside Polina until the summer and then I imagine someone will come in and pay pay the money that the club want Polina and if you're looking at it'll be a massive loss but I just hope it's a, it's a in, in, in the opposite of Dembele he doesn't go to like a Spurs I, w- I would like. I would it, if we were going to send them to any club. I'd rather it be Bayern Munich because they're a team who's going to be competing for trophies and we'll be looking for the latter enders of the Champions League with, after signing Harry Kane in the summer. I don't want him going to a team who's just fighting for the top four and sort of wasting his prime years. Yeah, no, I get you. I get you. Just on the the whole um, striker debate, I, I never thought I'd be saying this. If you told me in you know a couple of months ago that I'd be saying this on a Fulhamish podcast, then I'd. I'd Say you were dreaming, but Avas, did we did we miss Raúl Jiménez yesterday? I think we have been. Um, well, haven't we? We did do. Sorry, um, we finally worked out a way of playing with Raúl in the in the starting eleven. Um, and as we're saying, you know, players dropping back, creating the triangles and spaces to involve him. Um, but I am also still unconvinced by him. He's had two games where he's done very well and scored goals, but we can't really rely on him scoring you know, 10 more goals necessarily. We can't expect it because of how he's been and how he's still working his way into the team and getting that confidence. But we would have probably won that game if he'd started, if he was in the same form he had been last week. Um, but, you know, if, if you're relying on Munez and Carlos Vinicius being your backup strikers, you're, you're not going to do much in this league. Um, and, I, and I think that, if anything, this emphasises that we do need a striker this this uh, window, whether it's on loan or permanently and I'm glad that the owner was here to watch that dross so that maybe the marketing will be like you can see this is the squad you've left me with from the summer we've got to improve that team and talking of Andres very quickly um, I'm so pleased that he had a shocker against City in that final because I hope he turns off a lot of players what he might might seem like he is that we can then actually get him because it just screams of a player that we've been interested in for over a year and then someone else is going to 
pay ten million pounds more and take him. Um, so I, I really, I, I've, I've wanted Andre for a long time, and I really hope we do. But I think this is—it's a really—we said it for a while. It's a really important window. We need to—we need to make a couple of signings just to bolster the squad um, and become more cohesive because we can't have one player who is Raúl, who's nothing special. Let's be honest, come out the team and become dross again. We can't, we can't be a team like that. We've got to be a lot more consistent with or without and the squad's got to be better. I just want to add to Avas's point, if, if I may. I think the whole, the whole conversation around who is the best out of the three is kind of redundant now because it's very obvious that it is Jimenez. And regardless of if he scores lots of goals or not, I think he brings so much more than the other two in terms of his ability to hold the ball up, bring others into play, and just his overall intelligence. I think when we were having conversations around this at the start of the season, there was a part of me that was like, why are we having it? It's very clear that he is the best player, but he's just coming off a horrendous injury. And you con- you add the, the additional context of he has to come into Marco Silva's system, which a lot of players take a long time to understand the fundamentals of it. There was always, in my opinion, a time when he was going to come good just because he does have that caliber. And yes, he's not the player he was five years ago at Wolves, um, because if he was, we simply wouldn't have bought him for five million. There's, there's the underlying thing there. But I think Avas makes a great point. As soon as he comes out of this team, we are completely toothless. And it, we need a good, you know, a good starting striker. At the very least, we need a competent one to back up when Raul Jimenez isn't there or vice versa, etc. And I think, you know, there's something to be said about going out in January and really making a big splash and making a statement to say that, yes, we probably know that Pelini is going to go next year and we're going to have to rebuild, but we're already making the first steps to doing it. We're already securing our place in the league. We're already getting that additional prizing money for finishing higher up the league. Every little helps at this point. You kind of have to say, we're going to have to speculate to accumulate um, across the summer. So I, I just think that, Raul is a good player. I think there is something in there and I think he's finally hitting his groove. The worst thing he could have done is putting his bum in someone's face two games ago because it really stopped all momentum that he had coming into you know this run of fixtures coming up to Christmas. Yeah, if you look at the last two games, what, we've scored a deflected goal and that's it. In the two games, <laughs> in the two games he's not yeah. been here. I went, oh, and to be honest, away, away at Everton, like, I, I said it at half-time yesterday to a few people, I was like, let, I know we won it, but let's not beat Rambush like we were playing excellent football that game. <laughs> like we were pretty much holding on once we'd scored, and then we actually didn't. When we actually started creating chances once uh, Everton got that equaliser, so it has been clearly obvious in the last two games what we've missed with Raúl Jiménez once he sort of got into the stride of things in his team and got some confidence in him. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, we welcome him back. So the last game of his suspension is Bournemouth. Bournemouth. Which, so back for the Arsenal then- game. Back for the Arsenal game, so and that can't come sooner enough. Before we move on from the Burnley game, you mentioned from the stands that our chairman was watching and hopefully it'll inspire him to make a couple of signings come January. Uh, another notable attendee yesterday was Mr. Hugh Grant. Did anyone spot him in the stands? Anyone see him? He was looking yeah, my rather... Friend, my f- yeah, my friend who was sat in the Riverside said he saw him when he was having a pint before the game. Yeah, of course he was sat in the Riverside about the only person who could afford to uh, to, to sit to sit there. Uh, he was looking rather glum, wearing a uh, Fulham FC hat. Um, you know, just a boy sat in front of his team, wait for them to pull their finger out. <laughs> <laughs> I think his reaction summed us all up watching that 90 minutes yesterday. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, we'll leave it at that. One to just put behind us, you know, we're allowed a couple of sort of Anomaly results throughout the course of the season, but um, no doubt there'll be a few, a few more come May. But don't go anywhere because we're going to be answering some of your questions in part two. We'll have a quick look ahead to Bournemouth and a bit of any other business. Don't go anywhere. Hello, it's Sammy here, and this episode of Fulhamish is supported by NordVPN. Now, NordVPN is a way of watching sporting events, TV shows, and films which aren't available where you are by switching your virtual location of your phone, tablet, or laptop to a country which is particularly perfect for those 3 p.m. kickoffs which aren't televised in the UK. And right now, you can get an exclusive discount by going to nordvpn.com slash Fulhamish. Not only will you benefit from their already huge discounts, but you'll also get an extra four months for free. 
You can use one account on up to six devices. Also, it's completely no risk thanks to Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. So to get that special rate plus four free months, go to nordvpn.com slash Fulhamish or hit the link in the description of this podcast. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Merry Christmas. Welcome back to the Fulhamish podcast. I'm joined by Avast Jams and Dom Betts. We've got some questions here that have been taken from Instagram. So thank you to everybody who got in touch. I'm going to, um, we've been talking about Jimenez uh, just before the break. So I feel like this one is fitting. Um, I'm going to chuck this one to you, Dom. Shoot again, 72 asks, does Jimenez deserve to get back in the team after he killed the good momentum? And uh, obviously we've covered it at, quite length that he is important that he's by far the best of the three options but there is something to be said here like that moment of stupidity where he put his ass through Longstaff's face has just completely scuppered what could have been a very fruitful run in the lead up to Christmas yeah but also it means we'd have to continue playing Vinicius or Muniz so you just put him and his back in the team like yeah, after, what we've, seen, after what we've seen in the last couple of games I think that like it's yeah yes yes it was a moment of stupidity and in the in the away end at Newcastle I was like well one that is definitely a red card and two what is he doing <laughs> like it wasn't but although you can argue when it comes to that it wasn't at stupidity and yes it's killed any sort of any momentum we had but he just has to go back into the team because he's the only capable option we have and if we had another striker like. Let's say we had, you know, you have a player of Solanke's quality, let's say. Then obviously, you know, Solanke would be would continue playing. But the, the options we have, you simply just have to put him back in because you, there's no point, oh, because he ruined our momentum, let's not play our best option up front. That just that just sounds sounds stupid because we just continue playing this dross football we've been playing sort of recently since he had that red card because... There is, as I said, he is literally our only option we have at the moment. And that's, I think it shows why we need to go into the market in January and sign a proven number nine who can hold up the ball and put the ball in the back of the net. Yeah, agreed. Avas, Meli Nunn asks, do you think we were exhausted yesterday? Basic passing was very iffy. And I mean, it's a kind of, the the fixture congestion, you hear the likes of Klopp saying that it's, it's around Christmas. It's, you know, managers don't like it. And, it's causing the team to get tired and stuff. But all of the other teams in this league, by the ones that are already out of cup competitions, who maybe have it slightly easier, have this problem. So I'm not necessarily, I don't buy into the whole, oh, it's, it's, we're all tired because of the fixture congestion list. Do you think it was the fact that we were like tired yesterday that meant that we didn't play or was it just not our day effectively? And then it, I guess it becomes, is it a question of fitness? Burnley looked really fit. They did. They kept going right until the end. Is it the fact that we're not maybe as fit as them? What do you reckon? Were we tired? Is that why we lost? I don't buy into the fact that we could be tired. I've never really bought into that concept. Even Marco himself said after the game that he didn't feel like tiredness was a factor and he didn't want to use that as an excuse. I think mental fatigue could be an argument for 
some of their lack of intensity. But I also think, as we touched on earlier, I think there's a sense of complacency. We've we've beaten two teams at home 5-0 relatively recently. We had this huge high on Tuesday of getting through in the cup. So why wouldn't you just turn up against Burnley, a team that's been battered left, right and centre, uh, and you know half, half arse yourself to a 2-0 win and sleep your way to a nice Christmas? I kind of feel like it was more of an, an approach rather than um, a sense of fatigue. But also, Burnley were at it. I bet Burnley's sort of team talk the preparation for the game was more like, these are the kind of games that we can get some points out of. And they were at us from the beginning, well, from the beginning of the game. And like when 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 you think of this game, you don't think that Burnley are going to start off on the front foot. You think we'll have most of the ball, we'll create chances. And once we score the first and second, it'll be, you know, a rollover. But Burnley started the game off on top. He had... 10, 15 minutes of the ball before we really did much. Um, and I think, I think there's a lack of intensity from, um, from us, from a, from a mental perspective rather than a physical fatigue, I think. Mm. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, it's, it's just, it's always going to, we'll always have a result like this around Christmas yeah. and this, this question will always get ra- raised. It's but like, I wonder, it's I wonder if Raheel like, yeah. not playing and all that kind of stuff, like we're trying to adapt to Manise being in the squad. I think there's a lot, lot to think about like where, you know, when we played um, West Ham, we were in a flow. We didn't really have to think. When when you don't have to think about football, football's easy. But suddenly you had to rethink about your tactics and what people were doing in order to make Mooney's better with the qualities he has. And maybe that's something that they've overthought. Maybe they, they didn't think enough of. Um, it's just one of those days, George. I don't think there's a particular factor. I just think we were shit. <laughs> yeah, uh, it won't be the last and certainly uh, wasn't the first. James, we've got a transfer question here for you. Obviously, we've been linked in recent weeks with a uh, surprise, should I say, return to uh, from Fabio Carvalho. Would you sell Pelinia to Liverpool for forty million plus Fabio? That's Oli Marlow who asks. Um, I thought it was quite intriguing. I saw that and I thought I had to think about it for a minute. What would you say? I had to, th- you know, I think it's interesting in terms of the way it's worded and I think it's interesting possibility, but I think in the grander scheme of things, I probably wouldn't do that. I'd much rather have 60, 70, 80 million in the bank and have the ability to go out there and get three players for that amount of money than have Fabio Carvalho and the, and the ability to get one really good player. I think that, there, you know, we, we discussed this in the previous segment, there are a few gaps in the squad, especially in the attacking areas, and I think Carvalho is very similar to a few players we have. I don't know. I, I do love Fabio and I think it, it's brilliant. I think, honestly, he probably made the move a little too quickly there. And the jump, he hasn't just hasn't been able to make it. Um, and I think, actually, another season at Arsenal before going somewhere else would have been absolutely perfect for him. Um, I'm always reticent to have players return back to Fulham because typically they don't have a great history of returning and doing very well. Um, so in my personal opinion, I think I'd probably have the, the 60, 70 million straight up, go out and really make a splash in the market on top of the 50 million we've already got. And I think we could have a really, really good squad there that that transforms itself um, and we become a, a fixture of the top half for a long time. Do you agree, Dom? Yeah. Um, also, with, with the whole Cavalio thing, I don't think it's a surprise that he hasn't adapted well to Liverpool because he played in a number 10 position for us and that's the most effective any signs for a manager who only pretty much plays 4-3-3 like it, it like where he where he where he fits in and then he signs for Leipzig and then they go ahead and sign Javi Simmons so it's like as much as Carv- and I, I think I, I don't I, I, I'm not against the idea of Carvalho but as Ben said we have got players who are in a similar mould who can play in those positions um, and also yeah like I've never I, I'm not never a fan of money plus players deals anyway I think I'd rather as Ben said just get the money and then let us actually just sign a player we need because I don't see getting getting 40 million plus Carvalho you're trying to tell me Carvalho is worth 30 million pounds like I mean that's 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 that's, that's the thing here and also getting rid of a, a key player in our squad in, in, in our defensive midfielder and then getting as I've mentioned another player who plays in a similar role to a lot of players who've already got I'm not, I'm not against the idea of Carvalho coming back, but I wouldn't want it in a swap deal with Paulinho and I, I just don't want Paulinho going to Liverpool, to be perfectly quite frank. I don't think anyone does, to be quite honest. We've got another question here. This one's for you, Avas. Actually, I'll chuck it out to, uh, to everybody. So, dreaming about our cup run once again. Cooper asks, would a Wembley-Chelsea cup final be the biggest derby we've ever had? And he added that he has faith on the back of that. I think the only other one which would come close would be 
obviously Brentford in the playoff final. If you're talking about from a monetary point of view, I'd argue that that was bigger. And then obviously we've got the FA Cup final, which was a derby technically that we had back in the 70s against West Ham. Would Chelsea in the Carabao be the biggest one ever? I would say undoubtedly. I think it's the, our first chance to get a major trophy and it's against the team that we've all grown up disliking. And it wouldn't be any, couldn't, couldn't be any sweeter to win that major trophy against Chelsea. I think it'd be incredible. I think we'd actually have an incredible atmosphere maybe at Wembley where everyone would want to come. Everyone would want to see us win that trophy for the first time. And to beat Chelsea would be incredible. We all missed out on the opportunity to watch us beat Brentford and then play our final because of the, the lockdown. But that was an incredible, incredibly nervous but exciting game. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I pretty much hated that game. I'm nervously watching <laughs> it behind my sofa most of the time. But you feel like if you're in the stadium, you, you have your role to play. And I think against a Chelsea team that's hot and cold, if we, you know, with our white wall at Wembley, that could be an incredible occasion, one that could live on for decades to come. I think it's, yeah, it'd be the biggest game in our lifetime, apart from the Europa League final. Mm. What do you reckon, Jams? Yeah, I think it would eclipse any game that we've had in in major competition, as you say. I, I think anything, you know, if you go out there and as a best says, you go out there and you win your first major trophy against your biggest rivals, there's no sweeter feeling. And honestly, I think it would it would eclipse Brentford, it would eclipse West Ham, and just to send the team that spent you know nearly half a billion pounds recently packing would be incredible. Mm. Dom, do you reckon we've got we're in with a I mean, obviously the draw, bar getting Anfield in the second leg is pretty much the worst outcome that I think everyone agrees that was the worst outcome that could have happened. How do Fulham get through that two-legged fixture? If if we are to do it, how do you see us doing it? I think just playing playing pretty much how we played again in the league game a couple of months ago. I watched them against Arsenal yesterday. I don't think I don't think they're like I think with Liverpool, I think they've I don't want to say this to anybody, but I think they're flat to deceive a lot of this season, to be honest. I think they've been getting results, but I don't think they're this monster that they have been under Klopp in previous iterations, obviously when they won the league in during, during lockdown. And in other times where, you know, when they, when they pushed Man City all the way, when they got, was it 99 points, it's still some still time I didn't win the league. So I think they are there to be got at. Um, you know, what, seeing what happened to Simicast yesterday, their left, left back position is in a in a bit of a sticky situation at the moment when it comes to them. You know you can get a trend. We saw that in the game um, against. Obviously, they'll be without Mo Salah because he'll be away at AFCON. I know we won't have a Bassi or a Wobi, but, you know, I, I think it is it is the toughest tie we could have got. But, and I don't, I, you know, having to go to Merseyside again, <laughs> like after playing Everton three <laughs> times in 2023, the only positive of that was my open return didn't get scanned on the way home from Everton away. So <laughs> it's still valid for the uh, for the cup semi final next month. So I needed to buy a one way trade ticket. But honestly, I think we can get him. But going back to what the question was about the final, although it would be the best thing ever to beat Chelsea, obviously in a major cup final and win our first ever he's a major trophy and a uh, major silverware. Sorry, I think I'd be shitting myself for about a month. Mm. Just, just thinking about the final at, at the end, at the end of February, because you know, for for Chelsea, it's just another final, and it's the League Cup for them. Whereas for for us, it would be our first piece of major major silverware. But if we did, if we did beat Chelsea in the final, I don't think anything that any Chelsea fans want to say to you for the re- for the rest of the time. Really, you can just you could just point back to that. But you know, to to knock out Liverpool, probably a team I despise the most after Chelsea, <laughs> and then to beat Chelsea in the final would be a uh, yeah, would be magic and also qualifies us for the conference league so we're three games mm. away from Bosnia is the way I'm seeing it <laughs> Dom can await a penalty charge notice from National Rail after uh, ousting himself as a uh, as a train jibber but yeah no it would be we can dream we can dream I'm like I really 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 want it to happen but we'll see it's going to be a hopefully an amazing atmosphere at Craven Cottage for that second leg. And I think if we can just hang on and be, I don't know, within a goal or stink out the gaff when we go to Anfield and play out a sweaty draw, then, you know, it's all to play for is what it comes down to. Even if we're a goal behind, like we're still in the tie coming into the home tie. And it's just important that we have an atmosphere in that second leg that creates a sense of hostility that we're all up for this. Just like the playoff against Derby, we have to make this 
amazing atmosphere um, and at home legs. If, even if we're a goal behind going into that game, we can still sniff out another goal, get it to penalties. You know, maybe even nick a second goal. Even if we're behind, we're not we're not out of it. And I was I was um, on the phone to ticket office to get my Bournemouth tickets, and I was asking them about when the tickets were going to be released for the home tie, and sh- they were saying that they're not going to give the whole Putney end allocation to the away fans. So I think they're going to give them the bare minimum. Is that is the sort of rumor that I'm going to start spreading? Um, and if that's the case. We've got to take advantage of that. We've got to make some noise, as Joe Sampson always talks about. We've got to create this atmosphere that, you know, is worthy of the playing players that we watch and and getting the results that we deserve. So it's it's mu- as much as the players got to turn up. We've got to play our part home and away in in these semis. Yeah, it's it's a very valid point at the minute, and one that we spoke about earlier, and that the atmosphere yesterday at Craven Cottage was not amazing, and it comes off the back of the Fulham Supporters Trust publishing the minutes following a meeting with Alistair McIntosh. And this was the first time we've had communication from the club following the protest that we staged, that the club and supporters staged at the during the Manchester United game, the yellow car protest. And there's been a lot of uh, anger and frustration among supporter groups and fans on Twitter from the um, reaction from Ali Mack. And mainly he pointed out that he felt that the protest was not representative of the wider fan base and that the club have received supports from the fan base regarding the ticketing pricing structure. I I, I personally don't know where that has come from. Um, Maybe feels a little bit out of touch uh, from my perspective, but we were chatting earlier and Dom, you pointed out how we saw Jurgen Klopp midweek following Liverpool's 5-0 demolition of West Ham complaining about the atmosphere at Anfield saying that we need the 12th man, we need you know, fans to get behind the team. Do you think that the atmosphere at Craven Cottage is, is starting to show due to the fact that no ordinary fans are getting priced out and we've got this sort of melee of tourism and passing trade and people who want to come to this you know, iconic London ground and it's to the detriment of the fan base and ultimately the atmosphere and leading on to that it would be the team you know you, you you can feel the difference that having you know that 12th man makes on the performance of the squad and they come out afterwards and say the atmosphere is amazing spurred us on and if we're not getting that it's putting the team at a disadvantage ultimately and I guess what was your reaction to the minutes that were published uh, from the Fulham Supporters Trust and I guess yeah how, how are you feeling? Well I mean the, what Ali Mack said didn't surprise me I mean like it's it's what it's what the club's sort of word on this has always been. There's like, oh, if it's going to sell, then we'll keep selling this pricing. Which, from a business perspective, you can understand. But from a from a club, if you want to create an atmosphere at at say, I think I don't think this is a full and specific issue. I think this is a Premier League wide issue that atmospheres in general at the moment are are rubbish because the ticket prices are so expensive. So you're only you're going to get a certain type of person who can afford to buy these tickets who aren't seen ticket holders or who haven't been seen ticket holders to get that cheaper renewal price, which I think this season still was worth £35 a game. I think that's what mine worked out to be anyway. I think if you're in a different Hammersmith end block towards the left or right, I think maybe it's a bit cheaper. But I think the more, if you're going to have tickets, that I don't know, even like that 70 quid, 80 quid, let's say, right? At any football club, you're not going to get the working class fans or people from the local area who are the fans who are going to voice their opinion on things, who are going to want to create an atmosphere. You're going to get a different type of football fan, I, I think. Especially as a team in London, you're going to get, it's what the tourists are going to get. And you're going to get people who are going to buy these tickets and sell them with even more to tourists, which, 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 which you've seen. And I think and I, th- so I think it's a football issue in general. And I think it shows that why, I know or you're always going to get a better, or a better atmosphere in an away end, but when an away end ticket is 30 quid, and you can probably get a return train if, especially if people who are under 30 with a rail card for a pretty cheap and you can get a home end ticket and if you look at if anyone who was there on Tuesday night the atmosphere was great in that away end at Everton probably probably one of the best film away ends you've had in, in, a, in a quite a while and, and atmospheres have been, have been good in general this season and I think just the, I think there is a link between expensive ticket prices and the lack of atmospheres in a lot of in a lot of grounds this, this season not just Fulham I think it's a sort of country countrywide thing at the moment and um I mean, one comparison that can sum it all up. I think basically for the three Euros group stage game tickets I bought to watch England next summer, came to, for three of them came to cheaper than a ticket against Arsenal in a week's time. Like, 
that's ludicrous. It's a major, it's a major tournament. And, you know, three tickets came to 77 quid or whatever it was. And I think it, and, and I just think the more, yes, tickets are going to sell, but is it, is that not, you, they may sell for, from a financial perspective, but I still think that's a detriment to creating an atmosphere at, at the club. And I think that's something that Ali Mack and the Khans and, and, you know, all the other execs on the board need to get into their head. Yeah, I think I just want to quickly top off, if I may, please, George. I think with the with the ticket pricing being set in America, uh, I just want to give a, a perspective from a kind of North American point of view, just because I simply am there by proximity. But this is something that we're seeing across the US and Canada is that owners of teams and ownership groups of teams throughout the continent are facing similar backlash both in, in America and Canada. And are giving very similar answers to what Ali Mack gave the FST last week. Is that as long as there are bums in seats and as long as those tickets are selling, they don't care. Essentially, as long as their pockets are being lined by tourists or by anyone that would buy that seat by virtue of either being through Ticketmaster or via a tout before the game, as long as those tickets sell and as long as they're getting people through the door and into the merchandise and they're selling hot dogs and they're selling flight, uh, flat pints of uh, carling, they really do not care. Americans are all, and you know, ownership groups are all about how much money they can get through the door, in, both in terms of sponsorship and in terms of ticket sales. And Fulham are selling out games, and as long as they continue to sell out games, Ali Mack and the board will keep giving flippant answers towards the FST and towards the sort of the earth working class people that really do enjoy football. And I think that this is one of the problems that the Premier League is facing: is that ninety nine percent of the the clubs are owned by groups that are not from the UK or are, you know, foreign conglomerates that need to make money back on the huge investment they gave the clubs. I would also argue that they probably have a similar outlook to our ownership group and that as long as they're selling seats, they simply don't care. And I think one final point is that with the backing of the Super League being ruled to be not illegal and, you know, essentially giving it a green light to have another go at monopolizing football, it sends out another message to all ownership groups across football, basically saying that, the, you know, as long as you get fans through the door, you know, don't give a shit about your core fans. You don't give a shit about your core season ticket holders, those people that live off Stevenage Road that haven't been able to go for the last five years because they can't afford it. You know, you're basically saying, go ahead, scrap everything you were ever built on and just go straight for the money. And I think in 2023 and 24 and the next 10 years, all we'll figure out is that cash is king. And as long as those people that are, you know, puppeteering the clubs that we love, get the cash that they need to, we'll continue to see abhorrent ticket prices and frankly, abhorrent answers to questions that deserve, you know, a good and measured answer, which we did not get last week. And frankly, I know I, I understand that Ali Mack is probably a little bit of a, for want of a better word, a puppet for the Khans, but to come out and essentially say, you know, we don't care. The protest did nothing. You know, we've had support. Yeah, you've you probably have had support from a few fans. And obviously we see it on Twitter. But, you know, the support they've had is probably from, you know, the people are looking at the Excel spreadsheets and saying, yeah, we're making actually great profit off these match tickets. Go ahead. And, you know, the American, uh, just what, again, another final point to my labored point was that, you know, I think they would rather have a match that sells out at 95% where they're making a margin of 40%, for example, than a match that sells out 100% where they're making a margin of 20 And that's always the rule of thumb for owners, you know, that are part of those super groups. And that's just, in my opinion, and apologies if I'm out of off base for all our American listeners, but that's just the American and North American ideologies is that as long as they're making money, they really don't care. Just to add to your point there, Ben, with the American sports, it's all closed. There's no relegation, there's no promotion. So in order to get ticket sales, they can, they can have those huge prices because it doesn't really matter who comes. You don't need a necessarily need a loyal fan base because there's no detriment to them playing badly. It's just every week, do they get enough um, um, support or well, people to turn up? Supporters, probably not the case. Whereas in this country, the, the sport here is all community-based. It's, it's located in Fulham because that's where the club was created. It was supporting the local area. Um, whereas in America, you know, they move clubs that move from towns like the Rams moved from St. Louis to, to LA and they have no fans anymore. So they try to oversell, they try to hype up in markets to make themselves attractive. And here 
the whole point is that the club is meant to be community-based. It's meant to be, as Dom said, for the working class person to come and watch sport. And so to outprice those people, um, quite frankly, is a disgrace. And it shows that the owners really don't understand the culture of football compared to NFL, where an NFL is about making money and bums on seats here. It's about creating a loyal fan base that will support the club because in this country, this sport is the is all based around the, the fans. We are the club. We make the club. Uh, and the fact that, like, <laughs> that Ali Mack can say that the protests weren't helpful. So, well, no shit. The whole point of a protest is that we're against what you're doing. And you meant to open your eyes to the fact that maybe we aren't happy. And if you had any respect for us as fans who made the club what it is, you'd say, okay, well, why are you upset? And maybe look inwardly, even at 1%. But to be so brazen just slaps in the face of the idea that we're the idiots that are taking trains and coming back home at three in the morning watching a club that doesn't give a shit about us. Why are we not getting coaches taking us to, to Liverpool and Everton on in the midweek? Even to, even to like Ipswich, people coming back home at two in the morning. Get, get us a coach. How much does it really cost you? Those margins that they want to to bank on. I can understand we're not the biggest club in London, let alone, you know, of course, in the, in the country, whatever. But there has got to be some legislation of the fact that you are a billionaire. You know, a couple of grand on a coach is going to be nothing to you. And... Um, but there are little things like that that just show they have such contempt for the fans, which um, you don't have to worry about in the NFL. And they just haven't bought into the culture of the club, the sport in this country. And it's just snowballing into what we're seeing now. And when, whenever we do get relegated, if we ever do, where are those tourists going to be? They're not going to come. They're going to go watch Arsenal or Chelsea or whatever down the road. And that's when we're going to suffer. And that's when this law fan base that they're not creating um, is just not going to exist. And, and what's going to happen then is they're going to have this huge fucking stand that's going to be three quarters empty. Yeah. And then they're going to wonder yeah. why no one's buying tickets. I think you made a great point when you first started around the uh, the leagues in America being closed off. And I just want to add a couple of points to what Avas said, that this off-season for a lot of the American sports, you've seen the blue chip franchises making huge gambles and signing players or superstars onto huge extortionate deals that are, you know, probably 10 years in worth. So I just want to give you a couple of examples. There's the, uh, the LA Dodgers, who are a baseball team. They are owned by Todd Bowley in part, who owns Chelsea, obviously. They signed a the, probably the best baseball player in the world, a guy called Shohei Otani, um, who I think maybe if you're a big sports nut, you probably would have heard of. They signed him to a ten million deal, a uh, ten year deal, sorry, that is worth seven hundred million. Um, and they also yesterday signed a big pending free agent pitcher from Japan, and they signed him as well to a deal that is nearly three hundred million. That is one billion dollars on two players from Japan because they know they will make that money back in 10 years because of the tourism that that will attract to the Dodgers franchise and the shirt sales and the attendances that they will get and hopefully everything that comes with that in terms of a couple of World Series trophies. And they've been able to do that because as Avast says, they're a closed off league, they have revenue shares and with those two big signings, they will make so much money back on pure attendance and TV rights. And they know that it won't hurt that franchise. But in the Premier League, when you have relegation and you have you know, people coming and going and you have the heavyweights in Saudi Arabia and you have the heavyweights in you know, Bayern Munich and PSG and Real Madrid, your players aren't going to be at your team on a fixed contract for 10 years. They will go. And you're going to have to adapt and you'll have to survive. And relegation is definitely a prospect for a team like Fulham. You're going to have to deal with it at some point. And therefore, you cannot afford to be flippant in pricing out your core fan base because if you do go down, are they going to be there to rescue you when you need it the most? Maybe not. And those tourists that you're relying on right now to fill out the Riverside stand and finance that Riverside stand, are they going to be there again? Probably not. So I, I think just as from, from a bit of an outsider's point of view, I think the, the statement they made last week shows a complete lack of respect to, to fans. And, and frankly, I, I would be very, very surprised if any of those statements were received positively by any Fulham fan, uh, because it just shows a complete disregard for, for the fans of this club. Yeah, um, Alibat's comments filled with contempt and just read the room, man, you know? Yeah. And apparently there was some chants echoing around the Hammersmith fans. Uh, I won't repeat them on the podcast, but showing... Uh, exactly what the fan base think about him at the minute. So 
I don't know what's what we've got planned as a as a as a sort of uh, as supporters, but I imagine there's going to be more coming their way in this issue. Sadly, it's not going to be going away for a, for a little while. Sammy and the Thursday Club will cover it in a lot more depth uh, in the next podcast. So do keep your ears peeled for that. But we just want to do obviously react to the news and yeah, we'll put it to bed. We can forget about it over the Christmas period and then we'll we'll, we'll bring it back up again. I'm sure. Just quickly, so we got Bournemouth on Boxing Day. Dom, are you a fan of Boxing Day football? Yeah, I like Boxing Day football. It's just we're never at home. It's the problem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when was the last time we had a, a home game uh, on Boxing Day? We, we have had a couple. We have had a couple, to be fair. Uh, but this is the second time we've had to go to Bournemouth on Boxing Day in the last ten years. I think it was our first season down in Championship. I want to say we had Bournemouth mm. on Boxing Day. I think we lost one nil. It was pouring down with rain all day. <laughs> um, I remember George Williams diving for a penalty, which was never given. But yeah, I, I like Boxing Day football. To be fair. Um, I mean, what, the most enjoyable one was probably that Ipswich one um, under Slavisia Kanovic. That was that was a great. Yeah, I'm, I'm a fan of it because I was talking to a couple of my mates at Chelsea seems to get older about obviously they're playing on Christmas Eve and I was like if you had a home game on Christmas Eve I think it'd be great but I couldn't think of anything worse than them to go to Molyneux on Christmas Eve. <laughs> I, could, I don't I don't want to go there on like a Saturday in August, let alone <laughs> on on Christmas Eve. But no Boxing Day football. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan of it. Obviously, there not being no trains is an issue, but I mean. Yeah, I, I think it's good. I think it's part of tradition that needs that needs to stay. Really, I think it's it's part of our football calendar. I, I don't like how all the games sort of get spread out over. I'd rather I mean, if you if you had you know a half a half twelve, then what seven games at three, one at half five, one at eight o'clock. I think I think that's 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 your, that's your perfect Boxing Day, really. But obviously they spread it across a few days, and yeah, looking forward to hopefully a bit of a better performance than we saw um, against Burnley. Yeah, Avas Solanke scored a hat trick against Forest in their last run out, three two win uh, in Nottingham. How do we stop this man who's seemingly on fire at the minute? Well, I think Tosin um, and Solanke are, are good friends, aren't they? So I'm sure if anyone knows how to stop Solanke, it'll be him with the uh, yeah, just with the bow and arrow celebration from a couple of years ago in, in the Parker yeah. Derby, as it was a couple of years ago. That bell end. Um, so <laughs> I, I feel like if anyone's going to have his number, hopefully it'll be Tosin and Bassi alongside him. I think it's a, it's a terrific centre back pairing that hopefully should find a way to to marshal against him. But you know, he's not the only player in that Bournemouth team that's dangerous. That that's dangerous. They've got a great attacking outlet like Cliver who we were linked with a couple of years ago is starting to do well. Um, oh gosh, who was the player that they signed from Celtic a couple of years ago that, oh my God, I'm blanking on his name. Brian Christie. Right, Christie, sorry, yeah. So Christie, I think, is, is a great player. It's, quite, it's, it's their version of, of Wilson, you know, and, uh, a tricky player, comes onto his left quite a bit. So, and, and their manager's got them playing, finally, a really good brand of football. And at home, in that tiny ground, um, they, they, you know, they create an okay atmosphere, but they, their players are given reason to be noisy. So we've got to play our part. And I think that, you know, we have got the quality to beat this team. It's just about it's just about which Fulham turns up. If we're up for it, I don't see why we can't get something out of this game. And uh, you know, I, I, if I'm honest with you, I'm not that bothered if we don't pick up too many points because of just where the, the, the sort of the state of the league is. So long as our players are ready for that Liverpool semi final, I'm not really that overly fussed about how we get along in these next couple of games. Those two games against Liverpool really are when we're going to get excited. Hmm. Yeah, that's a valid point. Just quickly, James, before we wrap up, how do you see this one paddling out? 1-0 victory, pissing down with rain as uh, Dom experienced a few years back or are, are we in with a shout here? I think we're in with a shout, for sure. We're always in with a shout at the game, so I think it's going to be a very hotly contested game. I think, as of us, as we're coming into a game where their key player is in a rich and hot vein of form, he just came coming off a hat-trick, I think you can probably expect Solanke to give us some problems. He always does. Um, they've got a, a lot of very tricky players. And I think Andoni Iola, um, for a manager who is so far into or in the infancy of his managerial career, is playing such brilliant football and has done for a, a number of clubs, working his way all the way up the Spanish pyramid and now rolling the dice at Bournemouth. I think he's had a phenomenal start to his managerial career. And as an athletic club fan or sympathizer it's absolutely amazing to see him you know transforming from one of the the best right backs that the club has ever seen into a a wonderful manager um is really heartwarming and i think actually that there'll be a a massive test for us on boxing day um i really hope that we do come away with a positive result from the ground um and yeah i think we can snatch an away win 
Excellent. That'll be a wonderful Christmas present to all Fulham fans, especially ones who are making the trip to the South Coast on Boxing Day. I think that's about all we've got time for today. Avas, before we round up, would you like to name the podcast? What was your favourite three-word yeah. review? So as much as I liked Paul Budd's Silver's Felice Navibad, I think as you're saying, it's been done before. So I think we'll go with James <laughs> Wilson's Sander Slays Whites. There we go. Thank you very much. And this will be the last Fulhamish podcast before the big day. So... Thank you all so much, uh, all of you who listen and, and all of your support throughout the year. From everyone on the Fulhamish team, we wish you a very, very Merry Christmas. And yeah, and a Happy New Year and all that jazz. Don Betts, thank you so much, man. Uh, enjoy the rest of the darts. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the proper sport restarts on the, on, on the 27th. So that's, that's, that's when we're back into it. <laughs> Is darts a sport? Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> pure, pure athletes. Who's your your money on out of interest? Uh, I managed to get Luke Humphreys before he started winning the majors this year at ten to one earlier this year. So go on, go on, cool hands. As long as as long as going price don't win it, I'm happy. So (laughs) you hear him come out and say the other day that he was about to pull out the day before the tournament started because he didn't like the crowd. Yeah, I think he just needs to grow up. Yeah, like if you're gonna if you're gonna give it, you gotta be able to take it. I know I know he gets more abuse than most players do, but. You know, that's just that's just that's just darts, you mate. If you if you're not, you know, if you're not, like, you can't be you can't be Stephen Bunting. You can't get let's go Bunting mental. You can't all be like him. But uh, you're gonna have um, to think no, if, I, you're, if you're if you're gonna give it, you have got to take it. And in that in that yeah, environment, the crowd's always gonna be a huge part in that game. And if you're gonna be a dick, you're gonna have to accept that they're gonna rinse you for it. Yeah, it's, I reckon Luke Humphries. And I think I mean, you know, everyone's looking at Luke Litter, the apparently 16 year old. Um, Oh yeah, he's like that. He's like that guy from the Inbetweeners, isn't he, Wolfie? Mm. Born in, <laughs> born in like, 2007. What? I don't think so. The funniest thing I saw on Twitter was there's a photograph of him being 16 and that 15 year old snooker player, and he looks like he's <laughs> seven. It's so funny. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely the burliest 16 year old I've ever seen. Um, Jarms, thanks so much for your time, man. Great to have you back from Canada. Thank you, mate. Yeah, loving being back, and it was just a shame we didn't see a win. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, always, always Boxing Day. And uh, Avas, cheers, man. Thanks for having me. Right, Merry Christmas, everyone. Have a great festive week. Um, yeah, see you next time. You white. Right.